0: The journey today, Nehemiah thirteen coming to wrap up this great book you 'll find it on page four hundred eight if you 're looking at a Bible that looks like this, uh, which is in uh, should be in a chair in front of you uh, and just like every week would really encourage you to have to keep your Bible open the entire time uh, it will help you follow along uh, it 's a good illustration for all of life. Just keep your Bible open uh, if you 're new to the Bible. Uh, we said the chapter numbers are the big, bold numbers. So that you see chapter n- number 13. And then when I say verse, those are the small numbers that come after the chapter numbers. So we are in Nehemiah 13. But just to lead up to that point, I'm going to refer to another part of the Bible. Exodus chapter 34, verse 10. You don't have to turn there. Exodus 34, 10. The Lord says to Moses, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels, such have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. If you know the timeline of Exodus, you know when God spoke these words to Moses. God told Moses this after the golden calf. After the people who he had just freed from slavery worshipped a cow. That is when God told Moses this. He restores them and he reestablishes his relationship with his people. This is a great moment, but then we wonder what happens next. Well, the book of Numbers happens. And if you know Numbers, it's just occasion after occasion of the Israelites grumbling and complaining against the Lord as they're in the wilderness on their way to the land of Canaan. And they, once they get to the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to them, what happens? They refuse to go in. And so God disciplines them, but again, God restores them. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites declare that the Lord is their God, and they promise, God, we will walk in all of your ways. And so they settle in the promised land, the land of Canaan. God keeps his promises. They look to their new lives in this new land, and they commit to serve the Lord once again. This is the end of Joshua so many of us know so well. Joshua 24, verse 16, the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. What happens after this? Israel serves other gods. This happens time and again. It happened in the book of Judges. Now, wonder, friends, have you picked up the pattern yet? This pattern runs throughout the entire Old Testament. God's people walk away from him. He disciplines them. He forgives them. He restores them. And then they promise never to do it again. But then they do it again. The pattern continues when Israel has kings instead of judges. The pattern continues even in the books that we've been in. Books of Ezra and Nehemiah. God has just restored his people from being in exile in the country of Babylon. And they promised, God, we will never, we will live how you want us to live. But then they sin again. And we see another instance of this pattern today in Nehemiah 13. And this pattern gives us one of the central lessons of the Old Testament. And I think it's the main takeaway from this chapter as well. It's not printed in your bulletin, so you've got to pay attention. Main takeaway every commitment to live a new life apart from the power of the gospel is a dead end. Every commitment to live a new life apart from the power of the gospel is a dead end. No matter how hard we try, we cannot reform ourselves, we will fail to keep our promises happened with the Israelites over and over again. Nehemiah 13 contains attempts to break this pattern, to escape from this cycle of sin. And Nehemiah 13 also points forward to the way that God would ultimately break that cycle for his people. So uh, just look at Nehemiah 13 and glance at the chapter as a whole, and we'll split it into three different parts. Verses 1 to 14, we see Nehemiah cleans up the temple. Verses 15 to 22, Nehemiah cleans up the Sabbath day. In verses 23 to 31, he cleans up marriages. Now hold on, if you've been with us through Nehemiah so far, does this sound familiar? Sabbath, temple, marriages. It should, because these just came up in chapter 10. These are the same areas back in chapter 10 where Israel's like, God, we know we've struggled with these. We promised to do them right this time. And where are we now? It's as if the message of chapter 13 is meet the new issues, same as the old issues. And we can relate to this, can't we, friends? Look at our politics. We've had the same issues for a really long time. Immigration, infrastructure, oil prices, entitlement reform, national debt, foreign policy. But we can relate to this personally as well. Don't the same sin issues pop up in our lives over and over again? And so in our time this morning, we're going to go through chapter 13 in these three different parts. And then we'll see, is there any wisdom to be gained from this chapter of how we can break those, that cycle of sin, of repeating those same sins over and over again. That's the plan for this morning. So first, we look at verses 1 to 14. Just get the lay of the land for these verses. We're not going to read them just for the sake of time. But verses 1 to 9 deal with the people who could come into the temple. Verses 10 to 14, deal with the people who would maintain the temple. Keep it going. And then we can zoom in even further on verses 1 to 9 and split it into two smaller parts. Verses 1 to 3 start with kind of a general principle about who is allowed in the temple or the assembly of God. Then verses 4 to 9, apply that general principle to a specific situation. Now, when we look at this general principle laid down by verses 1 to 3, it's that no Ammonite or Moabite was allowed in the temple or could be counted among the people. And so the first question we naturally ask about this general principle is why? Why is this the case? Well, verse 2 tells us. You can look there. Verse 2 points us to another chapter in the Bible. It points us to the book of Numbers, chapter 22. Now, at that time in the Israel's history... They were on their way from Egypt to the promised land. We've talked about that a little bit already. And Ammon and Moab were countries surrounding the land of Canaan, where Israel was going. Now, instead of Ammon and Moab helping these newly freed slaves, instead of doing that, they hire a guy named Balaam to try to curse them. But the thing is, God had promised Israel. He promised Abraham and his descendants. He promised to bless them. So they are going against God's purposes. And so this general principle of verses 1 to 3 of no uh, Ammonite or Moabites can be allowed in the assembly of God. Again, this isn't about ethnic or racial purity. This general rule had to do with the Ammonites and the Moabites' refusal to worship God and instead worshiping other gods. And so we should remember the example of Ruth. She should remind us of this as well. Because who was Ruth? Where did she come from? She was from Moab. She was a Moabite woman. But she was accepted into God's people. She turned from the idolatry of her nation and turned toward the one true God, Yahweh, the God of her mother-in-law, Naomi. So this is still true today. All of us, by nature, stand outside of the people of God. Contrary to what we popularly say, God does not accept us the way we are. God accepts us despite the way we are. And we're not accepted into God's people, not because of color of our skin, but because of our sin against God, our rebellion against him. But we say anyone can come if they follow the same path that Ruth did. Leave behind the gods that we make up on our own. Leave behind serving ourselves and turn toward the one true God. You may know this verse, but if you don't, it is a beautiful verse. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The only qualification is faith, nothing else. So like we said, verses 1 to 3, Our general principle, verses 4 to 9, apply that general principle to a specific situation. So the situation was that the high priest of Israel, this guy named Eliashib, he was related to an Ammonite, a guy named Tobiah. And he let Tobiah into the temple of the Lord. And yes, if you're wondering, this is the same Tobiah that's popped up earlier in the book of Nehemiah. The same Tobiah that attacked the Israelites as they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. The same Tobiah who constantly mocked God's people. The same Tobiah who went to the Persian king and leveled false accusations against God's people. And so here was Eliashib, the high priest. He likely became related to Tobiah because he had one of his kids marry one of Tobiah's kids. People did that back then. They did that to Kind of form alliances and to gain more power. So, Eliashib, we think about this guy's situation. Eliashib was the one guy, the one guy who had access to the Holy of Holies in the temple, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the one place on earth where God was most uniquely present. Eliashib had access to that, no one else did. And this guy compromised. This guy decided that he would rather have Tobiah in his corner than God himself in his corner. This guy decided that he would clear out items for the worship of God so that a man who hates God can have a storage unit in the house of God. And so Nehemiah returns and he cleans up this mess. And throughout the book, we pay attention, Nehemiah gives timestamps of when certain things happen. And if we put them together, we see that Nehemiah left Persia and was governor of the city of Jerusalem for 12 years. And then here he goes back to Persia but that, to serve as the cupbearer to the king. But now he's coming back to Jerusalem again. And he says he, it says he came, comes back after some time. And that brings us to verses 10 to 14. We said verses 1 to 9 cover who could come into the temple, Verses 10 to 14 cover um, who could maintain the temple, keep it going. And so now Nehemiah addresses who maintains the temple, and the problem was that nobody was maintaining it. Nobody was keeping things going. And, And look at the question that Nehemiah asked the officials in verse 11. He asked them, why is this house of God forsaken? Oh, what a tragic moment, especially if we know what's come before in this book. Just a little bit earlier in chapter 10, verse 43, what did the Israelites promise? Big, bold declaration. They say, we will not neglect the house of our God. And now, where are we? The house of God is forsaken. Not that much later. And the question this time around isn't why. The question is how? How did this happen? How did it get to this point? The house of God was forsaken. Well, the house of God was neglected This section tells us because the Levites were neglected. They were the guys who took care of the temple, but they didn't support them. And again, how tragic, because just a little bit earlier, at the end of chapter 12, all of Israel promises, hey, we're going to take care of the Levites. Out of our daily income, we're going to support these guys so they can do their work. But they stopped. And so now the Levites had to stop their work so they could feed their families. And then the temple is forsaken. So to take care of the temple, they would need to take care of the Levites. And brothers and sisters, I just humbly say that the New Testament says this same dynamic works in the church. You know, the Apostle Paul was willing to forego being paid as a pastor when churches couldn't afford it. He was willing to forego being paid as a pastor when the perception would be that he was in it only for the money. But the Apostle Paul is pretty clear that the norm should be that churches financially support their pastors. I know it's a weird thing for me to say. And obviously there are circumstances that prevent this, but churches help their pastors do their work well by supporting them so they can do that work full time. And brothers and sisters, thank you for doing this for me. Thank you. But as to say, it's not just for me it's also for yourselves. Supporting a pastor is an investment in the health of the church. When the church does that, it says that it desires to be fed with excellent sermons. It desires to receive focused care and ministry, and it even desires to have pastors who aren't burnt out. Thank you for doing this. Now, Nehemiah prays that God would cause his work to last, his work to clean up the temple, to keep going, to last beyond his days. He does that in verse 14. But then in verses 15 to 22, he cleans up the Sabbath day again. He addresses another issue that has plagued them. Now, does Nehemiah care about whether or not they just do or don't do certain activities on the the Sabbath day? Is that the only thing he cares about, or is it something deeper than that? it has got to be something deeper, especially if you look at verse 18. I mean, why else would God clear out the land of Israel and Jerusalem for profaning the Sabbath? It has to show something deeper about their hearts. You see, the Sabbath was the time they set apart to worship the Lord. And by profaning that time, they show how they treat the Lord himself. How they treated the Sabbath showed how they treated God. And so when we talked about the Sabbath day a couple of weeks ago from chapter 10, we said that Christians are no longer obligated to keep the Sabbath day the same way that the Old Testament Israelites did. We said that because Jesus is a fulfillment of the law. He has caused us to rest from working our way back to God. And amen, we say hallelujah, because we could never do it. But we still worship God. And like the Israelites in Jerusalem here, Us, the people of God, we let other things crowd out our worship of God. And so Nehemiah comes back and he jealously and thoroughly guards the time that the people had set apart to worship the Lord. He does things like blocking the foreigners who came in and traded in the city of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And he does that, you know, ironically, this is exactly what the Israelites said they would do. They said, if we were ever going to break the Sabbath, we would do it like this. This is the loophole we would find. And they took the loophole. (laughs) Friends, we stand to learn from this. We would be wise to set aside time when we worship the Lord. To set aside time every day. I would submit not just, if you can, not just one time a day, but multiple times a day. Set aside time where you... Draw near to the Lord in scripture and prayer. Heck, even in singing. You're allowed to sing by yourself. And I'm largely preaching to the choir here, I know. But we must set apart this time on Sunday mornings. And then we must guard it. Anticipate what will regularly invade this time. Just like Nehemiah did. Just like the Israelites did. So what will invade your daily time with the Lord? What will invade your Sunday mornings? Is it your phone? Put it on airplane mode. Put it in another room. Is it the people in your house who are wild and crazy? Well, every day, wake up early. Wake up before everybody else. Do that as you can. What invades your time? Is it that you just don't feel like reading the Bible or praying? Is it just that you don't feel like coming to church? Well, of course, we're not always going to feel like it. Of course, we want to feel like it, but we have to decide right now that this is a good thing whether or not we feel like it. This is a right thing whether or not we want to be here. So, Nehemiah cleans up the temple, he cleans up the Sabbath, and in verses 23 to 31, he cleans up marriages, okay? And here we go again. This is yet another instance of where the Israelites went directly against what they said they would do. Chapter 10, verse 30, they plainly promised, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And Nehemiah comes back, and what does he find them doing? Verse 23, they married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, right away, we see why this is a big deal. Verse 24. Verse 24 says that this affected the next generation. It says that half the kids in Jerusalem now couldn't speak Hebrew. And this is a big deal, not because they really loved their native language and they didn't want to lose their culture. This is a big deal because Hebrew was the language of God's word. They didn't want to lose the Bible, and therefore they didn't want to lose their knowledge of God and their identity as God's people. And Derek Kinder, a commentator on this passage, he, he reflects on how quickly this happened. He says, A single generation's compromise could undo the work of centuries. Isn't that humbling? And this is still true today. A single generation's compromise can undo the work of centuries. I mean, there's so many examples, aren't there? I think of today, you know, one generation has treated the church like it's just a single option on the buffet line of religious insights and experiences. It's treated the church like you don't go to, partic- you don't go to participate, you go to spectate. And now today, the consequence of that is that so many don't know what the church actually is. That the church is a group of Christians, a community of Christ followers. It's not just an audience. It's not just an event. A single generation's compromise can undo so much. So Nehemiah knew the stakes here. So he takes swift, drastic action. If you you look closely at verse 25, it, it is drastic. It says he cursed them, he beat some of them, and he pulled out their hair. This is probably an example where the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing, not saying, this is what you should go do. But to give some background, these actions don't come out of nowhere. Cursing is not the same thing as cussing somebody out. This is Nehemiah stating the curses of the covenant, kind of the terms of the agreement they have with the Lord. And at times, God's law called for physical punishment for a transgression. So Nehemiah follows through on that. And pulling out somebody's hair was culturally significant in that time. It was a way to bring public shame upon someone. It was a way to deter people from doing the same shameful conduct. And so then we go into verses 28 to 29. And again, Nehemiah applies this general principle of pure marriages to a specific situation of a priest marrying a foreigner who worshipped another god. Now it's important to note just as we wrap up the overview of this chapter uh, that we have different ways to address sin as Christ's new covenant community. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 18. The Apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 5. It's that we confront those who are in the church but who are living in unrepentant sin. Sin they refuse to walk away from. We do this because we have the goal of winning that person back to the community. But if the person persists, if the person refuses to listen, we say that we can no longer affirm that person's profession of faith in Christ. We can no longer say with confidence that that person is a Christian. So this comes with the subsequent and very difficult actions of removing that individual from church membership and prohibiting that individual from partaking in the Lord's Supper. That's the way that God has given his new covenant community to address sin. Now, but we look at this chapter as a whole and what do we do with it? Nehemiah 13. Can this show us anything about how to avoid and how to escape those same old sins that have always plagued us just like the same old sins that have always plagued Israel, the Israelites? And I think it can. I think it can help us do that. So to close our time, Here are nine lessons from this chapter about avoiding and escaping the sin cycle. Nine lessons, I know. Buckle up. I'll I'll go through them quickly. Lesson number one from Nehemiah 13 about how to avoid and escape the sin cycle. Lesson number one. Be careful of living for mountaintop experiences. Be careful for living for mountaintop experiences. All right, just think about what comes before this chapter. What happens right before Nehemiah 13? There's sin again. Nehemiah 12. And there's this joyous celebration in Nehemiah 12. I mean, thousands of people are coming to this to dedicate the walls of Jerusalem. There's singing. There's marching. There's shouts for joy so loud that their neighbors can hear it. It's easy to shout for joy for just one day. It is quite another thing to worship the Lord every day. All right, question for you please don't raise your hand, okay? Because I already know. How many people ever get bored here? It's okay, you can admit it. It's okay, it's, I'm not offended. It's not our intention to make anybody bored. But I want to argue that is not necessarily a bad thing. I want to argue that. You see, many well-intended churches try to do everything they can for their people never to be bored, never to have a dull moment. Well-intended churches, it's not, it's, it's not my job up here to bash other churches. We want to pray for other churches. Well-intended churches try to do everything they can for their people to have a big emotional catharsis each week. Now, let me say, it, we should worship God with joy and with our emotions. But what we, an unintended consequence of that is that we communicate then that the only way to worship God is when we have this big religious buzz. Yes, it's good to worship God with joy, but if we, if we try to worship God, if we try to stay on the mountaintop, if that's the only place we can worship where we feel like we worship, then how do we worship God in the valley? And how do we worship God in ordinary, everyday life that is often boring and not a mountaintop experience? Lesson number two, avoiding and escaping the sin cycle from Nehemiah 13. Lesson number two, stay awake. Stay awake. How long did it take for Jerusalem to unravel again? How long did it take for it to go back to their old state? It says Nehemiah was gone for some time. Most commentators argue that it was just two to three years. Two to three years. And all the good that they had done was undone. 2 to 3 years the high priest himself gets cozy with the world 2 to 3 years the israelites give up sacrificing their time and money to devote to the lord 2 to 3 years the israelites get complacent they don't they don't think they need to give to the temple they don't think they need to keep the sabbath anymore brothers and sisters we say this often we don't drift into holiness Unless you got a Tesla or something. If you take your hands off the wheel, your car will not go straight. It's the same thing in your life. You will end up in a ditch. I wonder, friends, have you, have you ever considered the very humbling thought that we can wreck our lives in less than five minutes? Have you ever considered that? That is massively humbling. In less than five minutes, you can say something very hurtful that you can never take back and takes years to recover from. In less than five minutes, you could take a very easy rabbit trail to a porn site and be hooked for years. In less than five minutes, we can wreck our lives. God have mercy. But it's not just the quick decisions, though. It is also the gradual descent. It's like in Israel. Jesus said that the way to destruction is easy. The way is wide. It's not hard to find. And you don't notice it when you're on it. So especially if you've been in church for a long time, I want to tell you today, I can include myself in this, do not rest on your holiness of yesterday. Do not rest on the ways you served yesterday. You think about the call to follow Jesus today. Years of faithfulness can bring familiarity. And familiarity can lead to complacency. And complacency can lead to compromise. Friends, stay awake. Lesson number three, avoiding and escaping the sin cycle. Receive confrontation. Receive confrontation. Boy, that might be a controversial thing to say, uh, I wonder if you've ever gotten through an entire day, you get home and you have to go to the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you notice that you got like a booger hanging out your nose or some kind of thing and you're stuck in your teeth. Emma, one of the first things you wonder is, all right, how long has this been there? Did I get through the entire day and nobody said anything to me about something that's stuck in my nose or in my mouth? I mean, it tells us a couple of things, doesn't it? It tells us that we don't always see everything about ourselves. And it also tells us that we need something or someone to tell us about what we don't see about ourselves. So when did the Israelites discover that that they shouldn't have idolatrous foreigners being counted among the people of God? When did they discover that? Verse 1, first sentence. They discovered it when they read the word of God. When did the Israelites discover their sin about the temple, their sin about the Sabbath, their sin about their marriages? When did they discover that? It was when Nehemiah confronted them about it. If we are going to walk in the way that God intends for us to walk, then we will have to see things about ourselves that we are blind to. And in order to do that, we will have to receive confrontation from the Word of God and from the people of God. We will have to be steeped in the Word and apply it first to ourselves, not to somebody else. I know that's a really big thing to say. You've got to apply the Word first to yourself, not to the person you think should hear it. If we are going to see things about ourselves that we don't see, We will need relationships where we talk about our sin. We will need to open up our lives to other Christians. Relationships where we talk about our sin. Christian, do you have these, or is sin not a problem for you? Because if that's the case, then you're on, like, Jesus level, and we should talk more afterwards. We will need to ask people to have... We will need to ask people who know us well. Just ask them, how am I doing? Be humble enough to ask that. We will need to ask people for help. I know we don't like doing that. We will have to take initiative to do these things. And you could take advantage of the structures that the church offers you to do these things. We have a sweet time at men's group and women's groups and at community group. But I have to say, I would love to see them more, better attended. I know there are other factors that consider that. Friends, as we give confrontation, we we don't aim to embarrass people. We aim to help people follow Jesus. And we need the humility to admit simply that there are things about ourselves that we don't see. The humility to receive confrontation. Number four, fourth lesson. Treat your life like it's a billboard for God treat your life like it's a billboard for God. Another way to put this is to give yourself the test of all that you're doing, all the ways that you're behaving, all that you're thinking. Is this honoring God's name? Is this good for God's reputation? So when you're in a long line at the store and everybody else is complaining, your life is a billboard for God, what will it say? When you are commenting or posting on social media, your life is a billboard for God, what will it say? When you are talking with your family and things are really tense, your life is a billboard for God. What will it say? The Israelites repeatedly forgot this. How they treated the temple, how they treated the Sabbath day, how they treated their marriages showed how they treated God. And in every one of these areas, it's like they put themselves in God's place. It's like they said, God doesn't make up the rules for how we worship in the temple. We make up the rules. It's like they said, you know, God doesn't make up the rules for the Sabbath day. We make up the rules. It's like they said, God doesn't get to decide who we marry. We get to decide. Friends, isn't that the heart of every single sin? God is not in charge. I am. That is the heart of every single sin. And Nehemiah takes such drastic actions to confront their sin because he wants to guard the reputation of God's name. Number five, bear fruits of repentance. Bear fruits of repentance. First section of this chapter, Nehemiah gets rid of the furniture in the temple that belonged to Tobiah. We say, if you pay close attention, he gets rid of all of the furniture. He doesn't take the furniture and just stuff it in a corner where nobody's going to see it. He doesn't take the furniture and just put a drape over it and say, all right, it's good now. No, he removes all of it. Removes it. And not just some of it, but all of it. That is a fruit of repentance. And then even later on, there are other fruits of repentance. He takes specific steps to secure that the the Israelites would support the Levites. He puts guys in place that would help them follow through on it. Nehemiah takes specific steps so that the Israelites would follow through on keeping the Sabbath day. He places guards along the wall. Takes specific steps to help them walk in repentance. You remember these words. What did Jesus say? Jesus said that if your eye causes you to sin, you do what with it? Pluck it out. Jesus said if your right hand causes you to sin, what do you do with it? Cut it off. Again, this is not, careful, this is, this is called hyperbole. This is exaggeration to make a point, right? He, Jesus is saying we should be willing to do anything to avoid sin. Uh, that's something that's just, of course we say that but do we take it seriously? We should be willing to do anything to avoid sin. Now, I get it. Sometimes we can't control being in a situation where we're tempted. Seriously, we can't. But you know what? Other times, we can. Part of repentance is doing what we can to close off the routes that we normally take to sin. Part of repentance is, is not believing the lie of that plant from the little shop of horrors. Do you remember remember what he said? What was his famous line? Feed me, Seymour. And the more this little plant ate, this ugly plant that was alive, the more that it ate, the bigger that it grew. A fruit of repentance is doing what you can to starve your hunger for sin. Don't feed it. Instead, we drink the living waters of the gospel. We eat the bread that comes from heaven, the bread of every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Number six, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. After every single reform, Nehemiah prays. He prays. He prays for God to remember him for his good. And we shouldn't read this as Nehemiah bragging about himself to God. Neither should we read it as Nehemiah telling God, you know what, God, you're in my debt now. You've got to do something for me. No, Nehemiah appeals to God that his actions have been honest and sincere. And notice, he, Nehemiah doesn't ask God to reward him. He asks God to remember him. He doesn't ask God to publish his good deeds so that everybody around him sees it. He asks God not to wipe out his good deeds. Verse 14. Nehemiah helped Jerusalem to repent, but Nehemiah knew his work could very easily be undone apart from God's intervention. So, so far we've talked about plenty of actions that we can take. But we have to be careful. We should never think that we can escape the sin cycle on our own power. Follow Nehemiah's example and pray persistently. Frequent the throne of grace in your time of need commit your way to the Lord. Number seven, remember the warnings of the past. Remember the warnings of the past. Nehemiah brings up the not-so-recent past in verse 18. He tells them, listen guys, God's people have ignored the Sabbath before, and where did that get them? That got them into exile. He brings up the past in verse 26. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He says, listen, your wisest, most successful king in your history was led away from God by his wives. How much more can that happen to you? Brothers and sisters, we will be tempted with the same old sins that have always tempted us. And when that happens, we think about our past. What was your life like when you were fully steeped in sin? Were you really satisfied? Were you really full? Did sin actually keep its promises to you? Remember the warnings of the past. Number eight, keep fighting. Keep fighting. The book of Ezra comes right before the book of Nehemiah, and the events of the books are about 15 to 30 years apart. At the end of Ezra, the temple is rebuilt. But the closing chapters of that book are just as disappointing as the closing chapters of Nehemiah. At the end of Ezra, the people of Jerusalem deal with the same sins they deal with here at the end of Nehemiah, 30 years later. And as one commentator observes, on the one hand, this is just so discouraging. It makes you want to scream. What are you guys thinking? When will you ever wake up and get it together? But on the other hand, it's also encouraging. Nehemiah is not throwing in the towel. Nehemiah is not giving up. Nehemiah continues to fight against the sin that they have struggled to leave behind. In the summers, especially, uh, Kate and I will get potato bugs in our bathroom. Uh, not a lot of them, but just some. she calls them pill bugs. It's weird. Uh, little potato bugs. And so I'll go to squish them. Uh, and... Try not to too hard because I don't want to make a mess. But when I squish them and I still see them squirm and struggle, it tells me that the job's not done, that they're still alive. And you know what? The same thing works for the Christian. The struggle is a sign of life. The struggle is a sign that you are still Breathing that we continue to fight against sin and haven't stopped means that the Lord is still with us. Because, friends, in some ways, we will never escape the sin cycle this side of heaven. But we can grow. And by God's grace, we keep fighting. Number nine, we've made it. Preach the gospel, not just the law. Preach the gospel, not just the law. Nehemiah 13 is even though it's not ordered this way as far as the book comes, it's actually one of the last scenes of the Old Testament story. And we see in this chapter, a problem persists, doesn't it? They keep breaking the covenant that God has made with them. And how will this problem be solved? I mean, Nehemiah is a great leader in all. He takes bold, drastic actions, but even Nehemiah can't solve this problem. Nehemiah can't change their hearts. So that's why God promised to do it. That's why God promised at a place like Ezekiel 34 that he himself will search for my sheep and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. And how did God do this? Friends, he did this through the good shepherd, his son. The good shepherd laid down his life for his sinful sheep, even the sinful sheep who repeat the same sins over and over again. And the good shepherd rose again and gives new life to his sinful sheep. And this new life comes with new hearts. See, the people in Nehemiah's day, they had the law of God. But the law didn't come with the power to keep it. It's like a car with no gas. They had the law written on tablets of stone. And now, because of the Holy Spirit, we have the law written on our hearts. The Spirit gives us power to live in the way that we never could on our own. So friends, preach the gospel, not just the law. The gospel is the gospel of grace. And normally we limit grace to forgiveness of sins. And that is glorious, that is permanent good news. But God's grace in the gospel also includes the power to live new lives. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. To those stuck in the sin cycle, there is grace. There is grace. Grace to be forgiven and grace to be empowered. Preach that to yourself every single day. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your, for your forgiving heart, your kindness to us sinners who are just so forgetful, who are, who are powerless to keep our words, and who need, who need a goodness that is outside of ourselves, that is not our own. Who need, who need payment, who need transformation, and we thank you, God, for the good news of the gospel. Would you make it real to us every single day? So that we can more and more escape this sin cycle. So that we can more and more stop doing the same old sins, the same old ways. Lord, we cannot do this apart from ourselves. Would you help us to walk vigilantly, to stay awake, to keep fighting? Encourage us when we are discouraged. And God, we need you to do what we can't. Root us in the gospel, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to respond to the word by taking the Lord's Supper together as Christ's family.